Welcome to the series of Seriously Dangerous Religion. Uh, the series built on uh, Ian Proven's really thought-provoking book of the same title, Seriously Dangerous Religion. Tonight uh, we have uh, Ian introducing the topic, uh, giving us a 45-minute overview of the architecture of the, of the main ideas that, uh, that drive his, his thesis. The thesis that uh, it was indeed Jerusalem that uh, innovated, disrupted, um, stood out from the entire ancient world in creating the belief system that has laid the foundations for not just Christianity but indeed the Western world. We'll begin with an introduction from Simon Smart, uh, our co-host uh, from uh, the Centre for Public Christianity, uh, and and Simon has the uh, added benefit of being a uh, ex-student from Regent College, um, and is aware of the impact that Regent College has had all around the world, um, and uh, he kicks off with a a story, a telling story of um, a major article um, about the uh, present New South Wales Premier, Mike Baird, who was educated at Regent. And uh, um, Ian uh, is, is quite central to this article. So um, enjoy tonight and enjoy this talk. It's uh, breathtaking and refreshing. Uh, when Mike Baird became Premier in 2014, uh, Nick O'Malley from the Sydney Morning Herald was asked to go to Vancouver to try to make sense of Mike's uh, theological education that people were starting to hear about. And uh, he went off there and he wrote an article about this. And the headline of the article, some of you remember this, was Mike Baird's Dangerously Virtuous Education. Uh, which sounded a bit scary. And the subheading was even more scary. It said, Premier Mike Baird's alma mater is renowned for its hardline Christian views. And uh, I, I went to Regent College. Um, it was a big surprise to me to hear this. Um, it's known for lots of things, not usually that. But in, in the article, which, uh, he, he said this. It started like this. In a concert hall set amid towering firs at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver last Friday night, a Scottish Old Testament scholar thunderously championed a philosophical outlook that has found its way to the very heart of the New South Wales government. And um, it just sounded very sort of sinister. And um, it went on. The speaker was Ian Proven, a professor at Regent College, a small theological school and seminary that is either accused or celebrated in Canada as a haven for arch-conservative social views or for dangerously progressive politics and economics. And uh, you know, it was fabulous stuff. Uh, it actually was a good article. Um, Nick O'Malley wrote a nice article. I think he didn't write the headlines and the subheading for sure. But he, he, was, he, he did go on to quote at the end of his, of his speech, Ian's last line of this, this pr presentation that he was giving at the graduation ceremony, where Ian said, don't be safe, don't be polite, and certainly don't be nice. Be good, be godly, and be very, very dangerous. Uh, it was a great... Uh, I wish I'd been there for that talk. Uh, we're going to hear a bit of perhaps that type of stuff this, this weekend. Um, I think the author, Nick O'Malley, was quite struck by Ian, actually. 
I think he found Regent to be a real surprise. I don't think he quite knew what to do with it. And I think he even conceded in that article that if Mike Baird were to follow the teaching that he received at Regent College, that he would undoubtedly be contributing to the public good. That if the things he would take that were, were so central to what he was being taught, he was able to apply that. That in fact, all people would benefit uh, from it. So the seriously dangerous religion that Ian Proven was talking about, is talking about while he's here in Australia, is one that we are very interested in at CPX. Uh, we're very interested in hearing about it, the difference that it's made uh, across the centuries and the difference that it still makes. And so we, uh, Ian, are uh, very much looking forward to that as everyone here is, so please uh, welcome Ian Proven. Good evening, everybody. I'm very glad to be here. Um, I have to say, in all honesty, at the moment, my mind is slightly more happy to be here than my body is, but we will just, uh, we'll just deal with that. It should be okay. Um, I'm not going to be doing too much thundering, to, to be honest, this evening. I, I was quite amused by that uh, newspaper article as well when I, I heard about it. It was a good article, but um, the thundering bit was a bit hard to reconcile with the... I was there. I saw it. Um, I just want to begin by reflecting a little bit on our context um, in the West, in what is progressively becoming a very secularized West, uh, self-consciously so, quite deliberately so, I think, in many ways. And the notion of religion being religious, which kind of place religion should have in this kind of society is a, a highly contested matter now, I think, um, in, in many of the countries that once formed uh, Christendom. Um, and that's really the context in which I want to set my uh, talks in these two uh, weekends. Um, in part, these talks are going to be a little bit about restoring some cultural memory um, just the business of, of what, it, what it was that started the whole thing going that became the West in the first place. Um, it seems to me that the cultural memory on that point is, is poor. And it's not just poor in society at large, it's actually poor in the church as well. This sense of history, the sense of what made us the people we are, broadly speaking, and so on. So I'll be talking quite a bit about history. I hope not in a tedious way. I know that those of you who remember your high school, the word history probably does not have happy associations attached to it. But history is not something it used to be. History is something we're in. Um, and it's always developing and moving onwards. And we stand in that stream. And what I want to do is I want to take us pretty deep back into that stream deliberately building on the talks that Edwin Judge gave at Gospel Conversations in 2014, when one of his recurring uh, phrases was, um, except in Jerusalem, such and such was the case, except in Jerusalem. And some of you may remember those uh, talks. And uh, his, uh, his expertise, his burden, was really to talk about Jerusalem vis-a-vis -vis Athens. So the biblical tradition vis-a-vis -vis the Greek philosophical tradition. I'll be doing a little bit about that, but I want to go deeper into the past behind Athens, and I want to go broader out beyond 
Athens. And I'll be using this except in Jerusalem word, which is up on the screen deliberately, Edwin's uh, term, as a shorthand way of referring to uh, biblical faith, by which I don't mean the religion the ancient Israelites were actually into, because the Bible itself tells us that they weren't very keen on Mosaic faith for most of the time. You may have noticed that. So I'm not talking about the actual religion of actual majorities back in the ancient Palestine area or whatever. I want to talk about uh, Mosaic Yahwism, that's what I'll call it. So the religion of Moses, and I'll talk about Moses a bit uh, later on. Um, and what I'll be arguing, I'm just going to put the argument straight up on the screen so that we have it. There are two parts to the argument, and in the first uh, part of the evening and probably the majority of the time, I'll be talking about the first of these that way back in history, before there was even a physical city of Jerusalem, and certainly before the Greek philosophers started getting going in the 6th century BC, that already Jerusalem, so defined, was offering a radical alternative to prevailing worldviews. That's the first argument. So way back then, uh, we already have a radical alternative arising in the middle of the ancient world, which profoundly challenged the, the norms, and not just the religious norms, but the political, social, and ethical norms of the ancient world. And I'll be referring to that as we go through this talk and other ones under the general heading of old religion, just because it's easy to have shorthand. So old religion, and I'll be, I'll be suggesting that before we get to, down to the Greeks and Plato and all those guys, that Jerusalem already offered a radical alternative to old religion, and it was indeed, and we've had this uh, advertised already, it was indeed seriously dangerous religion, I think in a good way, in terms of those ancient worldviews. And why this matters, um, and is not just a matter of historical interest, I'll be explaining as we go along. So that's the first argument for this evening. And the second one, which we'll be spending a bit less time on this evening, but developing in further sessions, is that from the 6th century BC onwards, from the beginning of the rise of Greek philosophy and the Athenian ascendancy, that from that point onwards, Jerusalem was not only dangerous and subversive vis-a-vis -vis Athens, but actually in terms of all the new religious philosophies emerging at that time. Um, you may or may not know that in fact the 6th century BC is a rather remarkable century in the history of the world. Because in the 6th century you get the rise not only of Greek philosophy, but you get the rise of Buddhism and Hinduism and Confucianism and Taoism. There was something in the water in the 6th century BC. And what was in the water, we'll, we'll think about, but there was something going on, and the Jerusalem view of the world was distinctive in relation to these other ideas as well. And I'll be referring to these other ideas under the heading axial philosophies, and I'll tell you why very, very shortly. So you've got the three, the three things you need to get a hold of, old religion, Axial philosophies and Jerusalem. Okay, those are the three 
the three things we'll be trying to, to put together. And why all of this is important, and this is why history is not just bunk, uh, why all of this is important is because these various worldviews, old religion, axial philosophies, and Jerusalem, have profoundly shaped the world we live in, not just the world of the past, but the world we live in now. And so understanding them isn't just about some technical matter of understanding the distant past, it's also about understanding the world we live in now. It's about what I would call cultural literacy. It's about being able to read the circumstances in which we find ourselves, and that's important because if we get it wrong, then bad things are bound to happen. That's my basic conviction on that point. So, that's the big picture. And if you drop off more quickly than I drop off because of my jet lag up here, hold on to that and you'll come back in and you'll be okay. And you'll be able to bluff because you got the three points at the, at the beginning. So, let's get into what I think is fascinating and really important uh, material. The story I want to tell begins in very ancient times. It begins at the dawn of what we call nowadays civilization. It begins at the time when so-called complex societies arose in the ancient Near East. And we know quite a lot about these societies in Mesopotamia and in Syria, Palestine, in Israel, in Egypt, we know quite a lot about these societies because for the first time in history, we have a lot of surviving evidence. So we know a lot about what these people thought, what they believed, how they acted. Uh, we know from their buildings, for example, the kind of worldview they had because their buildings reflected their worldview as buildings always do. Um, so, we know a lot about these ancient people groups from about 3000 BC onwards, and I'm just going to tell you what we know about them under a number of different headings, and some of you will be familiar with this material because you may have listened to John Walton when he was here a couple of years ago as well. What we learn, first of all, is that they were religious people. Uh, and their religion involved the worship of many gods, often with a high god presupposed in the background. Uh, these gods, as they called them, lived inside the cosmos. They didn't live outside it. So we think probably by default, most of us, that God is outside as it were. But for these ancient peoples, the gods were inside and they were closely tied up with what we would call natural phenomena. They didn't have natural phenomena, they had divine phenomena. So the sun and the moon, these were gods. They weren't just the sun and the moon. There was a god or a goddess of love, for example. Uh, there were storm gods. And the gods were bound up with aspects of existence inside the cosmos, and uh, we have uh, gods like the sun god Shamash on the right there, and the storm god Hadad, known in the Bible as Baal, on the left. So the gods are woven into the fabric of things. They don't really create the cosmos, they come into being with the cosmos. 
Okay? Basic idea number one. Um, tied up with this, in the ancient Near East, we find cities and temples. And these were important, but not for the reasons that they might be important to the modern mind, because we would think maybe of temples and churches as places for people to worship God in. But actually, in the ancient world, temples were mainly about being the residence of the gods on earth. So this was the palace of the god in the city-state. Um, so they were built to reflect the order of the cosmos. The architecture had a theology about it. Uh, so primarily the palace of the god within the city-state uh, was the temple, primarily designed for rituals, for the priests to keep the gods happy. And the deity, individual deities, were believed to reside in these temples, and their presence there was marked by an image in which the reality of deity was embodied. So it wasn't just a statue. This was a real presence of the deity in this image. And the priests would uh, go about uh, their business of trying to keep the gods happy, just as you would if you were a slave in the royal palace, keeping the king happy. And then in the local neighborhoods, ordinary folks would have their own temples and shrines because ordinary folks had nothing to do with the great gods and the great kings and, and all the rest of that. Um, keeping the gods happy was really important because if the god was happy, then you'd be peaceful and prosperous. So this was very much ancient prosperity religion. Right? That The gods were crucial for that purpose and keeping them happy was very, very important. But of course, it was always a bit of a puzzle to work out how to keep them happy because they didn't really tell you very much. So there was a lot of guesswork, a lot of tradition and ritual and, and divination, and therefore a lot of anxiety. In Mesopotamia, a lot of anxiety. In Egypt, not quite so much because conveniently in Egypt, the pharaoh was the god, so you didn't have to worry about what he was thinking he would tell you. So this is the advantage of totalitarianism. You don't have to be anxious. You just do what you're told, right? So that's good. But in Mesopotamia, the, the kings were only half gods, and there was slippage, basically. So it was a very anxious environment. In these ancient societies, kings were crucial to the whole business. Kingship was regarded throughout the ancient Near East as a gift of the gods to ordinary folks. Kings were chosen by the gods. The kings were adopted as sons by the gods, so they rise to some level of divinity by adoption, very high level of divinity in Egypt, and the king was the one who, above all, discerned the divine will so far as you could and put it into practice. The city-state was supposed to model as closely as possible the divine realities, right? So it wasn't just the architecture that reflected the reality. It was also institutions like kingship. And then, of course, there were inevitably human beings in these societies, uh, but of course, these were very hierarchical societies, top-down societies, with the god-king at the top all the way down. And if you asked an ancient Mesopotamian, uh, what are human beings about? Well, they are created, you and I are created to service the gods. That's what we're for. A human being, human beings are slave labor, essentially, in this kind of society. So we have these 
very highly stratified, immobile, eternal societies. There's no movement because the business is to reflect eternal reality, which is static. And right at the bottom of the pile are the human beings, most of us, all of us, as far as I know, uh, all of us here, and then at the top of the pyramid, the despotic divine king. All of that is generally true right across the ancient Near East. Okay, so there are local differences, but broadly what I've just been saying is true throughout the Bronze Age and all the way down into later times throughout the ancient Near East. Interestingly, it's also true in other parts of the world at a slightly later time. So civilizations like these ones arise slightly later in the Indus Valley, around 2000, 2600 BC. In China, the Shang civilization, around 1800 BC. And in Greece, pre-Socratic Greece. So there's enormous similarity in old religion across the globe, really, is what I'm saying. Um, and if you ask yourself, why is that similarity? Well, of course, we don't know, really. Uh, some of it probably had to do just with similar circumstances of life. Some of it may have had to do with direct influence. And we know that this is true of Greece. The ancient Near East mightily influenced the development of Greece in matters like art and literature and religion, and through Greece, the ancient Near East then impacted Rome. So there's continuity all the way through down history as well, not just geographically. I recall uh, Tony commenting during one of Edwin's talks that modern European scholars have tended to downplay the connections between Greece and the East because they all wanted to claim Greece for the West. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, well, if you really want to do that, you just have to ignore an awful lot of stuff. Uh, it, it is true 19th century European scholars did really want to do that, but it turns out simply not to be true. Uh, in pre-archaic art in Greece, for example, as one author has said, the gifts of the East to the Greek artist were manifold. That's a quote. If you think about early Greek literature, your Iliad and your Odyssey, well, there's very strong Easter influence there. This is a quote from Walter Burkhart uh, on what he calls the Orientalizing Revolution. Homer's decisive role in forming the worldview of the Greeks for subsequent ages was achieved by the force of written culture into which the Greeks finally allowed themselves to be drawn right at this period. It's precisely the Homeric epoch of Greece that is the epoch of the Orientalizing Revolution. The miracle of Greece is not merely the result of a unique talent. It also owes its existence to the simple phenomenon, I love this, that the Greeks are the most easterly of the Westerners. They're just close. They're picking it up, as it were. Uh, Jasper Griffin says this about the beginning of Hesiod's important early Greek work, the Theogony. The story is a version of a very archaic one. Its ultimate origin seems to have been Sumerian. Oriental influence is certain for an important myth in Hesiod. Get the idea? Art, literature, and religion. Because the Greek gods display very strong affinities to the ancient Near Eastern gods, 
even though they have different names and wear different clothes, but it's the same deities, right? It's exactly the same deities. In fact, the similarities are so striking that Robert Parker can say this, Greek religion belongs to the class of ancient polytheisms. One can, in very general terms, compare the religions of Rome, of Egypt, of the ancient Indo-Iranians, and most of the religions of the ancient Near East. There is such a thing, he says, as a class of ancient polytheisms, right? Broad similarities, uh, broadly similar social and political consequences to the beliefs that were being held across the ancient world. And this old religion has actually never gone away. I call it old religion because it's obviously old, but it's not simply old. It remains deeply rooted in the human psyche and human practice. It has survived underground, even where it's overtly and officially been rejected by official society. And indeed, nowadays, we are seeing a very pronounced resurgence of it uh, in, in a lot of the kind of New Age, uh, neo-pagan, kind of environmentally interested folks. A lot of the default religion of those spheres is, in fact, a resurgent uh, old religion. So it has never gone away. It's still shaping our culture. And these views, like all of these big picture views, bring with them inevitably proposals of an ethical and political nature. Uh, part, of the, part of the reason that school can be awfully boring, and I am one of those that found much of it boring, part of the reason is that people never really used to tell you when I was at school what stuff was for. Right? I, I met a, a mathematician at Cambridge University in later life, and he explained to me why I ought to have been interested in algebra. And he, if, if somebody had told me that at high school, it would have really helped. Because it turns out that algebra is actually quite useful. Did you know that? I just learned a formula, passed the exam, and, and, and left school. And, and what we were never told, or I was never told at high school, was that these ideas, religious and so on ideas, they're not just ideas, they have force. They hit the grounds, they shape things. And inevitably, it is true that old religion has social, political, and ethical entailments. It's just inevitably true. Uh, to put this in graphic form, and I'm going to come back and show you this slide a number of times over the next uh, week, every cosmology, set of beliefs about the world, is connected to a theology, a set of beliefs about God or the gods, and those two are definitely associated with a certain view of anthropology, what does it mean to be a human being, and all of those are connected to an ethics and a politics, how should I live? and what is the good society. And these things come as package deals, as it were. I don't mean that necessarily people hold them as package deals because what characterizes human beings is, is confusion, right? But, but, but in principle, if you ask why, why is that thing as it is in this society, the answer will be because one of these other things is true or held to be true or at least inherited as being true by the majority who haven't thought about it yet, right? Um, and that's really important to know, right? Because reading our culture, therefore, requires that we know enough stuff to do the reading, right? 
there's a, there's a basic level of literacy required. And of course, you can see immediately, it is very much in our self-interest that we should be able to do that. Because otherwise, we're simply going to be buffeted around by, by forces, yeah? And we won't have any idea of what's actually going on. Okay, old religion. So, this is the world out of which our biblical literature first emerges. It's a remarkable thing to say that, but I won't dwell on it. Astonishing thing. How on earth did something so different arise out of this context is the great question. Biblical tradition claims that God, one true living God, so pretty unique claim, that God was already calling people to turn their backs on old religion way back in the day, long before we get to Plato, back in the days of Abraham. What was Abraham asked to do? He was asked to leave Mesopotamia. And that just wasn't a physical leaving, you see. That was leaving Mesopotamia behind, everything about Mesopotamia. And later on, biblical tradition says there was a guy called Moses, an Egyptian prince, if you can believe it, of Semitic origin, and he had numerous spiritual encounters with this same God who revealed his name to him, Yahweh, and biblical tradition says it was this guy, Moses, who first began to articulate what we now call the biblical worldview. Now, there's a lot of skepticism around about Moses these days. We live in very skeptical times in general, do we not, about tradition and truth claims and all the rest of it. So I just want to spend a moment telling you why I don't think we should be skeptical about Moses. That seems an important thing to establish, that we're not dealing with a fairy story or, or whatever. Um, I'm very confident about Moses because basically, as I remember an old exam question that used to be on our exam papers, it went like this. If Moses uh, didn't exist, you would have to invent him, full stop, discuss. Uh, because how do you explain this phenomenon of ancient Israel in the context I've just described unless you have somebody like Moses at the heart of it? I mean, it's inconceivable, right? So what do we know about ancient Egypt in this time? Well, I'm not going to dwell on this, but that's, a very, that's the briefest form of Egyptian history I can get on the screen. Basically just tells you how to move from phase to phase. I'm not dwelling there. I'm going on to a very particular moment in this history, uh, just before we get to the New Kingdom um, and into the founding of the Egyptian New Kingdom under Pharaoh Achmose I in 1550 BC, from whom we then get successors like Akhenaten. This guy, most of you will have seen, this is Tutankhamun, right? He's rather famous because nobody robbed his tomb, not for any other reason. Uh, Ramesses II, and people like these guys as well, Horemheb um, uh, so and Seti I. These guys were big builders. They were building up there in the Nile Delta, centered in the city of uh, Avarice. And this uh, gives us a very plausible context for the oppression of the Hebrews by the Egyptians. You remember the story of building more bricks and generally getting on with the building work. Moses is himself an ideal candidate for the composer of uh, ancient Israel's founding story. 
We're told in the book of Acts he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. What does that mean? He was educated in the royal court. Well, that meant he would have been fluent in both uh, Egyptian languages, the hieratic everyday script, number B on the slide, and the hieroglyphic one, much more specialized in side A. So Moses would have been literate. Uh, he would have been a fluent Egyptian speaker and reader, uh, inducted into an Egyptian literary tradition that went back hundreds of years and already included narratives. The Egyptians were already writing narratives as well as autobiographies and biographies and a whole bunch of other stuff. A couple of examples, we're not dwelling, but we're just going to look for interest. The dialogue of a man with his ba. What's a ba? Well, the ba is who you are. It's a bit like the soul. Okay, so this is a dialogue all about death and the afterlife. Very famous 20th century BC Egyptian text. These were not, these were not rustics. <laughs> these, were, these were sophisticated people. Uh, the story of Sinuhe, a very famous narrative about a guy who gets in trouble and goes into exile in Palestine, lives there for a while until he can reconcile with the new pharaoh and he gets to go back home. Um, so just a couple of examples about this literary tradition. Uh, all of this literature and non-Egyptian literature was kept in libraries in Egypt. We know quite a bit about uh, libraries. Uh, there was a very definite archival tendency in the scribes. There was a very determined effort to write things down and to keep records. Moses would have been inducted into all of that as an adopted child, you remember? He's adopted into the royal family in the book of Exodus. And by the time that he finished his formal education, he would have been exposed to, this is a good list, very impressive list, Egyptian curriculum delivered what? Knowledge of mathematics, accounting, geometry, surveying, and simple engineering, those at least. He would have come across literature owing something to external influence, like the famous Treaty of Ramesses II with the Hittites. Um, he would have known other cultures' literature, like the Gilgamesh epic. We know that it was circulating in Palestine, at least, in this time period, because bits of it have been found at Megiddo. So this was a cosmopolitan world. We shouldn't get the wrong idea of these are, you know, just people with sheep, basically, right? Which is our, our pastoral image of, of, but it's not like that. This is a very sophisticated cosmopolitan world. People are highly educated, and particularly somebody like Moses in there as a prince of the royal court in that educational system would also have likely learned medicine, astronomy, geography, and foreign languages. Now, you can't do better than that. That's a good education, right? That's why I'm not skeptical about Moses, <laughs> not, not in the slightest degree. This is exactly the kind of person, if anyone was going to do it, who would tell the founding story of Israel with all of its convictions about who God is and who we are and so on and so forth. And where do they get the information? Well, how do you explain that unless he had an encounter with God just as it says so in the book? Right? It has to come from somewhere. I mean, call it IDs and intuition and stuff if you like. I'll stick to the revelation of God language personally, but from somewhere, this guy basically was able to, with all of his education, to, to, to tell this radically countercultural narrative. As far as we know, nobody had ever thought these thoughts before, as far as we know. So, 
What does this mean in terms of the worldview? And we'll be covering a lot of aspects of this in our time together if you're coming back in on future uh, days. I just want to give you a, a tester of some of the things that this means. Let's think about the gods, for example. So we talked about the gods, plural, woven into the fabric of the cosmos, playing out their role in the cosmos through natural phenomena. And so here's a very nice drawing from Egypt of the goddess Nut, who is the, the overarching lady there, overarching the other symbols there, the hieroglyphic symbols, because the goddess Nut is the goddess of the sky, you see, and she's represented, therefore, uh, in this way. But in the book of Genesis, of course, one personal God creates the sky and everything in it. It's a radically different view. In the biblical view, God creates the earth. And so you don't have to worry too much about Baal Hadad, the storm god. And there are loads of stories about him in the Old Testament because this, he was a very attractive god, it turns out, to many people because you, you, you need the crops to grow, and he's the guy who brings the rain, so why wouldn't you worship him unless you believed actually that something different was really true? So, uh, Hadad gets removed from his perch. You have a radical rejection uh, of the gods. The, the world is divested of its divinity. It is disenchanted. It is desacramentalized. What does this mean? Well, it means a bunch of things, but let me just mention a couple of them. It means that human beings no longer have to be afraid of every rock, stone, and tree because, you know, they're not full of spirits about out to get you and so on. In the animistic world, the world is a place full of, of threat, quite apart from anything else, and a lot of your effort goes into appeasing the spirits. Well, you don't have to worry too much about that if, in fact, you don't believe that God is in the world in that sense, right? And this helps to explain otherwise puzzling texts like the sun will not harm you by day or the moon by night. And you may have read past that and not really noticed it, but that's not about sunburn because there is no nighttime equivalent. You see, that's, that's a text about you don't have to worry about the people the other guys are calling gods, the sun and the moon, right? So there is, a, there is a confidence that arises from this about living in the world, right? It doesn't mean people didn't worry. We all get anxious and, 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 and we get worried. But have you ever noticed how many times the Bible simply says, fear not? It's one of the great biblical injunctions. Fear not. There's nothing to be afraid of in that sense, right? Because the world has, has been divested of all these threats, these multiple threats, that polytheistic animistic systems uh, bring upon us. And then another thing, a really important thing that follows on from this is that this, in biblical thinking, this is our home. I said earlier that in, in ancient thinking, the world was made for the gods. Everything exists for the gods. In the book of Genesis, the world exists for us. God didn't need it. It exists for creatures, not just for us, other creatures too. It is ordered in such a way as to allow creatures to flourish. It is our home, and we're allowed to renovate it, right? Subdue and have dominion, changes built in to the biblical idea. Earlier I talked about the static, eternal nature. Nothing moves, nothing changes. There's no story. Well, in the Bible, there's a story. It begins and it goes on. 
and it's dynamic, and quite apart from anything else, this is what eventually, once people get their heads around this and get rid of the Greeks, uh, this is eventually what leads to the possibility of modern science, which we'll talk about tomorrow morning. I've learned a lot from my public speaking. I've learned you always have to say, I'm not talking about this now, come back tomorrow. It's a kind of advertising gimmick, isn't it? So it took a while for that to happen because the church got embroiled in Greek philosophy in rather unhelpful ways, and so it took a long time, longer than it need be. Uh, but in a way, I would say, Moses actually created modernity, in a sense. Just took a while for other people to catch up, basically. Um, what about human beings? Um, this image of God idea. So in, in those two, what were the images of God? Well, they were those images actually physically in the temple. And the gods were embodied in these images. And the whole economy of the city-state, the politics, the society of the city-state... It was focused on the God King, but in line with that, it was all about making sure that the economy and all that was, was focused around the gods and their needs, right? So the images in the temples became the, the crucial point. And Genesis says, does it not, who is made in the image of God? Human beings are male and female. Every human being is an image bearer. That's a radical, that's an utterly, utterly radical idea. Because, of course, what it does is it puts us all on an equal footing, does it not? Now we're all image bearers. It's not the gods, they're gone. It's not the king. And, in fact, in, in the Bible, there's a, there's a very definite determination, you may have noticed, to rein the king in. Deuteronomy 17, the entire story you may remember Israel gets on without a king for a long time, and when they eventually get one, it's a result of sinful rebellion. Do you remember that? It's not exactly good press for kingship. So in the ancient world, you can't conceive of the world without the kings. In ancient Israel, you jolly well can, you probably should, right? Because they just screw things up. The monarchy just screws things up, by and large. There's some good kings, but even so, even the good ones are not that great. Even dear old David has his moments, you may remember. So this is where, now where does this idea come from, for example, that you and I as individuals, men and women, children as well, where does this idea, that we have human rights, a lot of language nowadays about human rights, very right that there should be, I have no quibble with the notion that human beings have rights, but where do they come from? I mean, the rhetoric of our time, since the Enlightenment in Europe and now globally, the rhetoric of our time tends to suggest that human rights are self-evidently there. You don't need to explain them, they're just there. And you may remember the famous document that says that. Oh, that's the image of God, that's me. It's also you, though. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. God gets in there, but what's more important is it's, they're self-evident, right? They're, they're just there. Uh, now, this is very interesting because my view of a human being and what that human being's rights may be and why I hold them to have rights is obviously going to affect my ethics and my politics, wouldn't you think? And as a matter of fact, where the West got this idea about human rights from was not from Athens, it was from Jerusalem. And the interesting question is, how do you sustain those things if you're going to start cutting off the tree, the branch from the tree upon which we used to sit? This is one of the great questions for contemporary Western society. 
that cares so much, and rightly so, about things like human rights, and yet can't explain why we should care about them, or what they mean really, and who gets to define them, actually, at the end of the day. So, um, I could say something about, about kingship and democracy and so on, but I'm skipping over that for the sake of time. We'll come back to that in a later, in a later talk. What I'm really suggesting then is that Mosaic Yahwism, so far as we know, is the earliest rejection of old religion. It is comprehensive, it is radical, it is dangerous, but it's dangerous in really good ways <laughs> that, that we in this room have all benefited from over the course of time because it's these, this worldview and these ideas that in fact shaped the world that we live in in the West. And to some extent, other parts of the world, but I'm going to talk about that now because there's a reason why it hasn't shaped other parts of the world so radically. Uh, so understanding the contemporary world is very much bound up here. So let's go on to this. And in case you're wondering, because I always do when I'm listening to a speaker, I'm going to speak for another 10 minutes. Okay, can you manage that? Is that okay? Good. Okay, who's this guy? This guy is Carl Jaspers. He's a a German uh, existentialist philosopher. Uh, why is he important uh, for my purposes just at the present time? He's important because he's the guy who really introduced the axial age language into the vocabulary of public discourse, that, that language I was using earlier on. So earlier on, I, I just hinted that in the 6th century BC, while the Israelites are back in Mesopotamia, by the way, They've been sent into exile. Do you remember that bit of the story? So they're called out of Mesopotamia. They couldn't hack it, so they were sent back for a while to work it out in the exile. While they are sitting in exile, all over the ancient world, stuff is going on. Old religion is being challenged all over the world for reasons that are not clear, and different ideas are now being put in place in these different societies, different ideas of the world. So... In India, Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, at least those two. In China, Confucianism and Taoism. And, and what they're doing is they're, they're trying to conceive of the world in a different way, using their reason to a very great extent. So they're, they're, they're looking for a rationalistic and a humanistic way of approaching personal life and society that is not so wedded to the old myths about the gods. That's the basic idea. And it is this mere fact that led this gentleman, Carl Jaspers, to propose this idea of an axial age, which for him wasn't just about a lot of different phenomena happening. He tried to bring a unified hypothesis to bear on this. And, and he basically said, you know, what all of these cultures were doing was broadly similar they were saying broadly similar things, and this provides a platform for contemporary people to get together around a unified set of ideas. Okay, so he was living in the aftermath of the Second World War. He was a German, he was very close to all of that, and he's looking for a new platform, a global platform, on which to build a better future. Very noble, very noble idea. And he hits on this idea of going back behind <coughs> Christianity and all of that, and Islam and so on, and going back to the 6th century or thereabouts, 
and finding something that we have in common, all of us, human beings on the planet, something we have in common that we can build a future on. That's, that's the big idea. Now, unfortunately, I think he's fundamentally wrong. Um, it is, I think, just impossible to simplify all of these religious alternatives and philosophical alternatives into one pluralist thing, basically. And the reason this book is up is, is again, just because I can't avoid advertising. And in this book, I tell people why Carl Jaspers is wrong. And I don't want to tell you at the moment exactly more than I've said why he's wrong. So I don't think we can, I don't think we should pretend that all of these uh, different reactions to all religion are at the end of the day just the same thing. But you'll immediately recognize that Carl Jaspers, whom I dare say most of you have never heard of, provides serious underpinnings to the modern pluralist agenda, the modern argument. How many times have you heard somebody say, you know, all religions at the end of the day are just the same? They're just saying the same thing. That's the popular version of, of this, or at least he contributes mightily. Uh, so even if you've never heard of him, he's in your head, basically, right? So the basic idea that, that uh, if, if we could all just forget all the religion stuff, it all says the same stuff. It basically wants you to be nice. Let's get together and be nice, and the world would be a better place. And I'm very much in favor of being nice on the whole, but it's not higher up my skill of values than some other important things. Um, anyway, that's the axial philosophies in the plural. I'm, I'm going to use the term axial age without buying into the Jasper's idea because it's a nice shorthand for what I want to uh, say. Now, of course, the pluralist argument is a very, very important one because if it is true, we certainly should believe it. And if it is not true, we absolutely shouldn't. <laughs> I would have thought that that's pretty obvious. So we need to know when Carl Jaspers or Jaspers' disciples get going, we need to know whether we should believe them when they promote this same idea. So I'm thinking here of somebody that you may actually, for all I know, have heard a bit more about, a lady called Karen Armstrong, who is really one of the world's uh, foremost contemporary advocates of the Jasper's thesis. And she's very well known, and she's on all the media, and she travels a lot, and she writes books, and this is one of the ways in which the Jasper's ideas is getting uh, out there. And in her 2006 book, The Great Transformation, uh, she makes a number of claims about this ancient period we're talking about now, and she says things like this, at their core, the axial faiths share an ideal of sympathy, respect, and universal concern. That's a claim about what we now call world religions, that they all basically are saying that kind of thing. Regardless of their theological beliefs, she says, they all concluded that if people made a disciplined effort to re-educate themselves, they would experience enhancement of their humanity. That's another quote from the book. Well, that's really, really important. Um, because if she's right, obviously we should indeed go and, and try to retrieve this axial ethos and, uh, and get along better together. The problem is, of course, what she's saying really isn't true. It's not actually empirically and factually true. In fact, it's palpably false. In a whole number of ways, it's just plain wrong. 
what Karen Armstrong says about these axial faiths, these world religions, is absolutely not what the Hebrew prophets were up to, for example. Can you remember a verse that tells you that the, pro the prophet said was, Hear, O Israel, make a disciplined effort to re-educate yourselves, and you will experience enhancement of your humanity. Well, no. <laughs> was this what Confucius was about in China? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And then compassion. Compassion is one of Karen Armstrong's big things, and it's a great thing. We should be in favor of compassion. But here's what she says about the historical picture. All the sages recoiled from the violence of their time and preached an ethic of compassion and justice. Now, this will surprise those of you who heard Edwin Judge's talks because you may remember that Edwin made it very, very clear that among the Greeks and the Romans, compassion was absolutely not a virtue. Do you remember that, some of you? He was brilliant at displaying how that was the case. What was crucial, the central virtue, was detachment from the world. That was what was really crucial to the, to the educated Greeks and Romans. And detachment was crucial if you were to get on with developing the cardinal virtues, and none of those were compassion either, right? So compassion and pity were out, absolutely out, and they were regarded as terrible weakness and, and a lack of virtue, in fact, to display them. Now, in biblical thinking, on the other hand, compassion is absolutely in. Absolutely. But it's a particular kind of compassion, actually, I would suggest. It's a very active compassion. It's about actively alleviating trouble in the world here and now. And therefore, it's not the same kind of thing as compassion in Buddhism. Same word, different concept. Because compassion in Buddhism is very much tied up, once again, with detachment, right? It's, it's a feeling of benevolence towards, but it's not active because to be active is to get away from the main agenda item, right, to the, the program. So this kind, of, this kind of vision of the world, for all that it's very attractive to folks nowadays in postmodern culture, really is very far from being truthful. Uh, all religions really do not say the same thing. They are quite distinct from each other in many crucial respects, and Jerusalem is distinctive in relation to all of them. To go back to the earlier example of human rights, for example, it is not an accident. There are reasons why the caste system in India has not changed substantially in over 2,000 years, and why it continues to resist change, even in modern India, where the government actually would quite like to change it, right? But there are reasons why it resists change. Cosmology, theology, anthropology, ethics, and politics all come together, right? They're part of a package deal, and to the traditional Hindu, the caste system is fundamental to the way the world ought to be. The world ought to be like that, exactly like that, because it's where you work out your karma in the hope then of, of moving on and up and eventually getting away from the whole wheel of existence. So everybody is exactly where they should be, everybody's not equal, and it's exactly right that they shouldn't be. You see what I'm saying? It's a, just an utterly different worldview, and it's not an accident of geography or... or or, or people being slow in the uptake or something, you 
Westerners, I'm afraid, tend to, to, to react all too often in that way to other parts of the world because, of course, they think that what is true to them is self-evident. <laughs> and if it's self-evidently true, the other people are just wrong. And so you don't even ponder these, these other rather important features of the whole, the whole package deal. There are deep reasons for the caste system. There are deep reasons why in the aftermath of the assassination of one of her colleagues in Afghanistan in 2009, the wound rights campaigner, Fauzia Kofi, said this, and she's not a Christian, but this is what she said, if you speak of human rights or women's rights in Afghanistan, you get accused of having converted to Christianity. Then that's not an accident, you see. Other people see it clearer, actually, than people who live in the West do. If you don't understand the philosophical and religious underpinnings of a worldview, you will never understand everything, anything else that's going on. And that can be dangerous, not just in personal life, but in the making of foreign policy, as the events of the last couple of decades have surely convinced us. Uh, for the lack of an understanding of some of these very things, the West has made some pretty awful mistakes in the world in the last couple of decades, I think. So, here are my concluding comments. Jerusalem already offered a radical, subversive alternative to the prevailing ideologies of the ancient world prior to the rise of pre-Socratic Greek philosophy, a very radical alternative uh, Jerusalem continued to offer a very radical alternative in terms of the other emerging axial philosophies, including those in Greece from the 6th century onwards, and Jerusalem still offers a radical and distinct alternative nowadays to all these same alternatives which are still with us. And that's what I meant earlier when I said it's not just history we'll understand better by understanding the difference between Jerusalem and these other worldviews. It's actually our own lives. And among the things it should make us think very hard about, whether we are particularly interested in Christian faith as such, whether we're Christians or not, no matter what your own particular set of convictions may be, the thing that should make us all think very seriously in the West on this point is what is it that we are actually leaving behind and throwing over um, as we are so rapidly leaving behind the Judeo-Christian tradition? And what exactly is going to happen when the saw does cut right through the branch that attaches to the tree that produced the branch in the first place? Um, if you think it's all just self-evident and somehow we'll work it out rationally, I suppose you're not going to care very much about that. But I actually think, if I am not being uh, too direct, that that would be rather naive. Uh, so with that, I will stop for this evening, and uh, Tony, I think, is going to come and host some questions.